So, I don't know about you, but one of the things I enjoy and find interest in as I'm on the internet or just seeing things around during the week is uh, the before and after shot, right? So advertising is full of these images, whether it's hair restoration or fitness training or invisible braces. Uh, One of the ways these folks try to get us convinced that we're in need of whatever it is that they're selling is to show us images of people before and then after they bought it, right? So sometimes that transformation is a little hard to believe. You're like, is that, is that the same person? Right? I think they're just two different people. Uh, but often uh, we get the point and we might even make a purchase. I admit I enjoy watching HGTV on occasion as well. That program is, or the TV channel is full of before and after shots. I'm just looking to see who's really tracking here. There's a lot of you. Uh, So take a house, like it's in shambles, there's mold everywhere, they find mold more. Uh, There's infinite clutter, which often is like, why can't they just clean that up, right? And it seems easy enough. Uh, There's a a bad flow to the floor plan. But then enter the Property Brothers, or Chip and Joanna Gaines. And the last part of the show is this grand reveal where uh, you see everything what it used to look like and then whoosh, this is what it is now in all its renovated glory uh, before and after shots are actually can be used for more serious and sobering things too right so think of like anti-smoking ads and part of that campaign is images showing the lung and what it looked like before and then after the damages of that habit I remember growing up and seeing a before and after shot of the furniture store that my grandpa's family owned in Dortmund, Germany in the 1930s. So before, it was just this well-established, stately building. Uh, and then after the world, world War II, it was just devastated in the rubble and dim reflection of what it had been before. Well, the most impressive before and after shot that we get to see as a church in our life together is the before and after shot of a person who has become a Christian. So a person who was formerly opposed to God and now has been made a part of God's family. A person who was God's enemy and is now God's child. Formerly loved the world and now worships God. So last week, if you remember, we considered the first half of Ephesians chapter 4. And you can turn with me there uh, if you'd like. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's fine. I'll be reading the passage for us as we go along. If you would, uh, if you would benefit by having a Bible that you can read throughout the week, uh, there are paperback Bibles out in the Connect table. Just grab one or two on the way out. So you don't need to ask anyone. Those are for you. And last week we saw that Ephesians chapter 4 begins the second half of this book, this letter written by Paul to a group of churches in modern day Turkey. And this second half of the letter is where Paul uh, transitions from talking mainly about what a Christian is uh, to now what a Christian does. So he stated the truth about who we are, united to Christ, that's how we're saved, how we're given new life. And now he's kind of filling out for us what this new life in Christ looks like, especially in the new community of the church. And it's clear from what Paul is saying uh, that this new community, this church, is what God has provided for us as the place we are to grow and mature. So remember last week, we called the church a a greenhouse for our spiritual growth. It's the environment where each member of the church best grows and matures. Uh, Paul talks about the church as a group of those united to Christ, and he calls us the very body of Christ. 
So as each member, each part of the body grows, the church as a whole grows, as we together seek to become more like Christ. So by way of refresher, Paul finished off the section we considered last week by saying this. There in verse uh, 15 of chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. So every Christian has a responsibility, we saw last week, to build up the body of Christ. Every Christian is given the wonderful privilege of joining together with a church and pursuing Jesus, not just personally, but in the context of a church family. Remember what Paul has been saying since chapter 2. We're in Christ. We've been reconciled to Him, to God. We are made part of this new family. And that family now necessarily includes everyone else who's been united to Christ. We've been adopted by God, and now we have new brothers and sisters. We have unity and reconciliation and love within the church. So that's a brief look of where we've been so far in Ephesians. And I hope that helps bring us up to speed for where we are this morning. Because this morning, uh, we come to the second half of chapter 4. Where Paul is continuing to teach us practically what it looks like to build up the body of Christ. To promote the health of this church. And he roots all of this once again in the new identity we have in Christ. So he said before that we've been raised with Christ. We are united to Him. All the benefits of His position accepted before God, God's beloved Son, is now the position we have, the benefits we have. We are part of His body. Our identity is found in Him. But now Paul's talking about, what does that mean for us? For our daily lives, for the life of our church as a whole. Well, let's look now at the second half of chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verses 17 to 32. So let me read that for us. Ephesians 4, 17. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, 
along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, as I said, over the past three months, we've been talking about Ephesians as divided into two different parts. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 show what it means to be a Christian, and chapters 4 through 6 show what it looks like to live as a Christian. And I think we see those two parts of the whole kind of in a thumbnail sketch here in this passage, in these 16 verses. So that's going to be our two points for this morning. First, what it means to be a Christian, and then what it looks like to live as one. So first, what it means to be a Christian. In Paul's mind, there's a definitive before and after in the life of someone who is united to Christ. Someone who's a Christian. So look there again at verse 17. Here we see the the before picture. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul here speaks of Gentiles, referring to those who are separated from God and living for themselves. And he sums up what it looked like for his readers to live that way, to live apart from Christ. And he's saying, don't walk as they do. That was the way you used to walk. But in Christ, you are to walk that way no longer. And what does he say about this former way of life? Well, he begins in verse 17 by talking about the futility of their minds. And he makes this more explicit in verse 18 by saying their understanding was darkened. They were alienated from the life of God. So here again, Christian, we're reminded of what we considered in chapter 2 a few weeks ago. Apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. This isn't something we work our way out of. I mean, if Paul used terms like spiritual sickness or spiritual weakness, uh, we might assume there would be ways we somehow could begin to make our way to God. We could overcome our weakness, uh, develop an interest in Him, make a well-informed decision to to follow Him. But Paul doesn't use those words. Uh, He says we can only be spiritually dead or spiritually alive. Dwelling in spiritual darkness or spiritual light. So Paul understands that our position apart from Christ is just a terribly bad one. It's it's hopeless. We're in severe trouble and we don't really care. We don't know him and we cannot draw near to know him in our sin. At this point I think a tendency of ours might be to blame this on God. Right? I mean, after all, it seems like we're, we're the victims here in this scenario. We're sinful, yes. But Paul makes it sound like we're, we're really just unable to, to fix that. Not even if we want to. And that just seems kind of heavy-handed of God. It seems kind of unfair. Why, why, why can't you just give us the opportunity to turn to Him if that's our desire, the ability? Why does this have to be our fault? And more than that, something that we kind of feel trapped in, not, not able to change even if we want to. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 18. 
Paul talks about this terrible state and he says it's because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart. Paul is saying that apart from Christ, we have darkened minds and hardened hearts. So it's not only a matter of whether, if given the opportunity, would we be able to turn to God. It's, it's also a matter of whether, given the opportunity, we would even want to. And Paul's answer is no. We wouldn't. Our spiritual deadness is not a passive deadness. It's, it's not a sort of limbo between good and bad. It's a walking death. An active ap- opposition to God. So back in chapter 2, Paul said we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And here he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. See, the longer we walk apart from Christ, the more hardened we become to Him. Uh, we're not neutral towards Him. We're not trying to decide between God and the devil. So, think of that greatest animated film of all time, The Emperor's New Groove, right? If, you, if you've seen it, you remember Kronk with the, the angels on his shoulders, right? The, the angel on one side and the devil on the other. Each one trying to convince him to come over to their side. It's more fun. That's not the way we live alienated from God. We're not in neutral. We're in high gear. Driving as fast as we can away from God. We're utterly opposed to Him. We hate Him. His holiness, His, his light, His Son... Our hearts become increasingly more and more hardened against him. Paul says in verse 19, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So apart from Christ, our pleasures are taken up with our own sinful passions. We have no interest in God. And and sin isn't something we just merely kind of dabble in. Paul says we sin with greediness. We're ravenous sinners. It's, it's actually only the grace of God that prevents us from being as bad as we could be. This is our position apart from God. Paul summarized it quite well when he said back in chapter 2 that we have no hope. That we're without God in the world. So what then does it mean to be a Christian? Well, like he has done twice before in Ephesians, Paul paints a stark picture of us apart from God, but he then transitions with a word. That is who we were. But now everything has changed. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So Paul has detailed what it looked like for us to walk as sinners. It's hopeless. But now he says that God has brought about something totally different. We've been taught in Christ that this former way of life is just that. It's former. We've been given new life in Christ. The truth is that we are to put off our old selves, which belong to our former manners of life, and are corrupt through deceitful desires. But how? I mean, haven't we just talked about how we were spiritually dead and we cannot turn to God? Once we take what Paul has said so far in Ephesians to heart, we're reminded that when we could do nothing to turn to God, He turned to us. He reached out to us. 
Even though we justly deserved his condemnation on us as our judge, he didn't abandon us. He, he knew every little sin and every big sin we'd ever committed. And he knew that every one of those sins was damnable before him since every one was committed against his holy and sinless character. So as our judge, God heard the most horrific testimony against us and declared us guilty as charged. And furthermore, he has handed down a just ruling in light of this cosmic treason we've committed. And the way we've kind of thrown off his rule and lived for ourselves. What is this just ruling? It's eternal death. Separation from his blessing forever. But the story didn't end there. God didn't stop at that point. The judge handed down a just ruling, but then he pulled off a grand plan to save us, those he had sentenced to death. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, to be fully God and fully man, to bear temptation and trial and sufferings, yet never sin. Uh, Jesus was the only sinless man, and he lived the life we were supposed to live, but could not. When it came time for him to receive unending reward for his perfect life, he was beaten. He was nailed to a cross and crucified. Not only did he suffer physically there, but but spiritually, bearing all of God's righteous judgment and wrath. This was the plan all along. God and Son agreed together that God would pour out His condemnation on Jesus so that we might live. Spared God's wrath. And then Jesus rose again as if to say that God's plan worked. He bore our sin, He condemned our condemnation, and then He rose again to show He had the power to do it. That's the good news of the Bible. And in response, we are to repent, turn to God, look to Christ. If we repent, we will, and believe, we will be saved. And if you're with us and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, this news is for you, if you will have it. It's only good news if you respond to it by turning away from your sin and placing your trust in Christ. If you will continue to reject God, His condemnation will remain on you. So listen, today is the day to turn to Him. Don't put it off. Come talk to us afterwards if you'd like to learn more about that. And church, this is God's grand plan of salvation. And it comes to us whose hearts are hardened. So how can we turn to Him if our hearts are hardened? Well, not only has God in His mercy sent His Son to die for us, but He sent now His Spirit to melt our hearts, to give us new hearts that are soft towards Him, that love Him, that trust Him. God not only provides for the accomplishment of our salvation, but for the application of it to our hearts. He, by His Spirit, gives us new hearts so we can repent and and put off what is old, put on what is new. God's salvation utterly changes us. And we respond to it by changing clothes. Verses 22 to 24. That's the image we see there. We respond by repenting. By taking off the old set of clothes that belong to our former life 
and putting on the new set of clothes that belong to the new life we have in Christ. It's a result of the heart change that God has worked in us. He has changed us and given us an ability then to come in line with that change. It's like we have the before and after shots of our spiritual life. Before we were dead in our sin, darkened in our minds, hardened in our hearts. But now we're completely alive. Our minds are being constantly renewed, verse 23. Our new lives are patterned after God, verse 24. This is all of grace. Christians, this is a reminder for us whenever we become comfortable in our faith. Whenever our identity as Christians begins to feel old and worn out and tiresome. This morning we're called to remember who we were. Hellbound, under wrath, no desire to change. We were like plummeting, we were plummeting away from God like, like a car hurtling out of control, without hope. It's also a reminder, Christian, to remember who we are. In his mercy, God has sought us out, arrested that hellbound race, given us new hearts, ability to repent and believe, put off the old self, put on the new, continually renewing us to become more like Christ. You see, Christian, how there's no room for pride here. Have you grown in your faith? Have you had opportunities to teach, serve the church? Are you sharing the gospel? If so, praise God and and praise Him alone. Uh, Don't reserve praise for yourself. Accept the thankfulness from your brothers and sisters, but then praise the Lord. His renewing work in you is bearing fruit. Be humbled. May our conversations here in this church and without in the community be flavored by the grace we've been shown. For it not for Christ, we would be still lost. And friends, this is a reminder of the complete transformation God has worked to save us. He hasn't just updated us to a new and improved model. He hasn't tweaked us, corrected a few things. He's not an app we kind of downloaded to give us greater blessing or fruitfulness. I've heard people use the phrase, God is a God of second chances. So if you've messed up your life, His grace comes and gives you another chance. And friends, I kind of get that. God is a God of grace. He does extend forgiveness over and over again. So if that's what that phrase is talking about, that's good. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to the cross, saying God gives us a second chance is not the gospel. If he had given us a second chance, we would have blown it again. The gospel says Jesus came to take our penalty and give us not second chances, but completely new lives. Salvation fully and freely. There's nothing to do to earn it. This new life utterly changes us. It's why we call it conversion. It's our testimony. We had darkened minds, but God. We had hardened hearts, but God. We were living the life of the old man, but God has given us new life. God isn't just merely an add-on. He is our lives. His redemption, our conversion, it impacts everything about who we are. It's an utter transformation. I've been reading the autobiography of Rosaria Butterfield. 
in the late 90s, Rosario was a tenured professor at a respected university with a, with a specialty in a field that was opposed to everything Christian. She spent her life mocking the truth claims of the Bible and God himself. But then, the Spirit gave her new life. Her whole world began to unravel and all the things she had invested in fell away. Rosaria realized that God's call on her life meant leaving everything and following Him. And this is how she described it. Making a life commitment to Christ was not merely a philosophical shift. It was not a one-step process. It did not involve rearranging the surface prejudices and fickle loyalties of my life. Conversion didn't fit my life. Conversion overhauled my soul and personality. It was arduous and intense. I experienced with great depth the power and authority of God in my life. In it, I learned and I'm still learning how to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. When you die to yourself, you have nothing from your past to use as clay out of which to shape your future. Church, in Rosaria's words and in Paul's words, we see what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian means to be transformed by God's Spirit so that we repent and place our trust in Christ. Being a Christian means we've been joined to Christ. He's our identity. We've found our only hope in His life, His death, His resurrection. We've put off the old man given to sin and we put on the new one, growing to be like Jesus. Being a Christian means we have been changed. We belong to Christ. We don't live for ourselves anymore. So if this is true then, what does it look like to live as a Christian? This inner transformation in our hearts must affect the way we live, right? How? Let's close by looking at our second and final point. So we've seen what it means to be a Christian. What does it look like to live as one? What does it look like to live as a Christian? So Paul is talking about change that's taking place in, a, in our hearts, but he also seems eager to tell us to keep on changing, right? Uh, he goes on in verses 25 to 32 to tell us not to do certain things that were characteristic of the old man and to do instead things that are characteristic of the new one. Huh? Because we still sin, don't we? Not all the time. Even though we've been given new hearts, we've been made alive, we still oppose God in our actions and words every single day. So this new identity we have, these new clothes we have, are things we're meant to grow in. We see a tension here, as we do all throughout the New Testament, between what is already true of us and what is not yet completely true of us. Yes, in Christ. Praise God, we are perfectly acceptable to, to Him. Our position is secure. Our sins have been placed on Jesus. They're not ours anymore. We're saved. But salvation doesn't end there. It doesn't end with a decision, a a walk down the aisle, a short prayer. The impact of God's work in giving us new hearts is borne out over the rest of our lives as you grow to become like Christ. So, So while we have put off the old man and put on the new, we're continually learning how to live that way. In our daily life, repenting, putting off the ways in which we formerly lived, remembering that's not who we are anymore. That's not where our identity is anymore. And and turning and putting on this new way of life we have. Remembering together as a church, this is who we are now. This is our identity. Striving to walk that way. Learning how to live that way. Pastor and author Tony Morita uses the story of when he adopted four children from Eastern Europe. 
as a kind of a lengthy process of the paperwork and all that was wrapping up and they're preparing to come back to the States, leave for the airport, uh, he says this. I told the girls via a translator, girls were going home. Little Victoria asked, forever? I said, yes, forever. Their faces lit up as I then gave them their dresses, socks, shirts, and more. They went to the bathroom and changed every garment. In their orphanage, upon leaving, the children had to leave behind every piece of clothing they had been wearing. What a picture of the gospel. They put off their old orphanage garments and put on the clothes from their adopted parents. New clothes, new identity, new home, new security, and a new way to live. So brothers and sisters, we have this new identity in Christ. We've put on the clothes of this new family. And now we have the rest of our lives to figure out how to live this way with one another. It's going to happen imperfectly. It's a process. Becoming like Christ. But we do it with confidence because this is who we are. Day by day. Minute by minute. Striving to put away sin that marked our former lives. And through the Holy Spirit renewing our minds, live as those who have been made new in Christ. As Tony Marita says, we must live differently since we're new people. So what does that look like in the life of our church? Paul gives us several examples in the closing verses of this chapter. Here we see just a few specific ways we still cling, or we still see our sin clinging to us, and we need to help one another uh, as we grow in this new identity. It's something we do together, something we do in light of the gospel, and something we do empowered by the Spirit. So let's consider each one briefly, and then we'll be done. So first look there in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Uh, the old man, the old self, loves lies. Uh, the very first temptation to sin was a lie from Satan to Adam and Eve. A lie about God. And ever since, we're happy to believe that speaking lies, speaking what isn't true, will prove to be the best outcome for us. But the new man, new manner of life in Christ, loves truth since it loves God, and God is always truth. So Christian, how are you doing with lying? Are you tempted to cover up your sin when you're with us in church? Is it second nature to you to put on a good face and lie about how you're really doing? truth, as we saw last week, is the bedrock of our unity as a church. Truth is essential to our health as a body. Paul makes that connection there at the end of verse 25. We are members of one another. And lying hits right at the heart of our unity. One commentator from two generations ago said, a lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. And so because of that, lying must be something we put off. Now this doesn't mean that anytime anyone ever says, how are you doing in church on Sunday mornings, you say, well, sit down. <laughs> we got a lot to talk about. Uh, there is a role that tact and discernment play here. But if no one in the church who isn't your blood relative knows how you're really doing, I think you're not speaking the truth. So repent. Strive to walk in your new identity in Christ. Find someone you trust in the church and have a talk. 
and find freedom and joy in confessing sin. Second, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, The old man has given to sinful anger. Anger is at its root a desire to be God, isn't it? It's sin at its most basic. But the new man is given to anger that is God-honoring. Anger at sin. Anger at sin's effects in the world and in our lives. And the new man is careful to guard against sinful anger and instead pursue reconciliation without delay. So Christian, how are you doing with anger? Are you angry at the right things? As I look at my past week and the times I was angry, it's usually when I was reminded that I'm not God and I really want to be. It's when my schedule is disrupted. My goals are not reached. My comfort is disturbed. But church, the gospel shows us our anger the way God sees it. It's not just a need to vent. It's a battle cry against Jesus' control of our lives. So we need to repent of that. So, where are you sinfully angry this morning? Is your sinful anger easily visible? Or is it something you kind of stew on and let simmer below the surface? Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And that's, that's kind of what he's getting at. Don't let it simmer. Don't nurse it. Uh, We have been set free from the control of sinful anger. So let's not give an opportunity to the devil to disrupt our unity and spoil our witness. Let's be quick to reconcile and forgive. Third, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The old man steals and works for what is not good. He thinks only of self. But the new man labors honestly and is a hard worker and and has a desire to be generous with his wealth and his time. So Christian, how are you doing in your work? Are you faithful in your workplace? Do you arrive on time? Do you work for the benefit of your boss even when you don't get the credit? Do you sense a growing desire to be generous? To give to others with no strings attached. Church, we're called to be workers until Christ comes back. Not only for our employers and our families, but for the building up the body of Christ. So there will be times when family needs to take more time. Uh, There will be times when work will take up more of a priority. But for each of us, let's commit to being prayerful and, and thinking hard about how we can be at work here to build up the body of Christ. Uh, there are opportunities coming up. Uh, reaching out to community through power packs and tree of life. Uh, maturing the body through the women's Bible study. Uh, men, we hope to start up a reading group in the new year. Uh, and so be on the lookout for that. There are always opportunities to meet each other, to invite one another to lunch, check up on each other through email or text, encourage one another. Uh, just being here on Sunday mornings is something we need to be diligent in and work hard at, isn't it? So let's commit to striving to doing that. Fourth verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sometimes it can be hard to square this verse with Paul's first example in verse 25, I think, where he says we should speak the truth. But here we're reminded that we are to speak in order to build one another up. 
old man seeks to promote himself in his words. The new man is able to use words not to corrupt, not to tear down, but to build up and encourage. This honors the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit's all about unifying and building up the church. So Christian, how are you doing with your words? Are you finding it easy to complain about your boss or your family? Are you speaking too easily about secrets or weaknesses of your brothers and sisters in the church? Is your private conversation pretty or explicit? In our day and age where this really hits home, I think, is on our Facebook pages, on our Twitter feeds, in the blogosphere, on the Instagram. Uh, We easily leave our words out in that kind of never-ending world of the Internet where they never truly die, and we expect no major pushback. Uh, We can show hatred towards political leaders. We can trash other brothers and sisters in Christ without praying for them and just kind of have that safe distance. Uh, There's even this thing I hear recently called Snapchat uh, where you can post stuff that only stays online for a little bit, right? Uh, For a specific amount of time. And to, to be honest, I love social media. So one of the reasons I try to get off it is because I still go on it, even when I'm off it. I, I love social media. I'm not trying to single it out. But, but for me, this app sounds like a singularly bad idea, right? It's a perfect opportunity for someone like me who's just given to talk, to just put stuff out there, have people read it, and it just kind of disappears. No consequences. Brothers and sisters, be careful. Use Snapchat. Use it for God's glory and to build up. Corrupting talk belongs to a former manner of life, but we've been made new, and so let's commit to being cautious in what we say, speaking the truth, but having a healthy knowledge of ourselves and our tendencies, open to the feedback of others, and whenever possible, to say less. When criticism comes to mind, remaining silent. Many times our silence says more than what we would say. Finally, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Paul seems to put it all in one big grab bag here, doesn't he? All these things he lists cause division and hatred in the church. And Paul says, put that away. That belongs to the old man. Now, in light of who you are, be kind and tender-hearted. So Christian, how are you doing with forgiving others? Is it something that you make people work for? Or is it your default mode when you're offended? You're ready to forgive. Church, let's commit to being a congregation that extends forgiveness even before it's requested. And as we come to the end of this passage, what do we see? The last one, two, three, four, five, six words of verse 32. We see the gospel. And it's kind of where we need to end. In our new lives, we are to love one another and forgive one another as God has loved and forgiven us in Christ. And it's that reality, that truth, that allows us to go over a list like this, that searches us and tries us and lays us open, 
and, and do it not to earn God's favor or feel anxious that we've displeased Him, but realizing that we already have His favor completely in Christ. And so we can live earnestly and strive to become more like Jesus. Let's be patient with one another in that process. It might be tempting to kind of finish this sermon and be like, I sure hope that that person takes us to heart and strives more. Let's not do that. Let's be patient. Let's seek after the Lord together. And let's just remember that one day we're going to be with Him and we're not going to be able to sin anymore. We're literally not going to be able to sin. It's not going to be part of us anymore. So let's just persevere until that's true. Let's love one another until we get there. Let's seek to build up the body of Christ. Let's pray to that end. Our God, thank you for changing us, for transforming us. We're humbled by that. And make us, make us more holy, more righteous, more loving. Sanctify us. Lord, as we've put off the old and put on the new, help us to learn how to live like that is true. And help us to just look forward to the day when we will, as we sung before, be glorified with you forever. Keep us until that day. In Jesus' name. Amen.